This by Carl Jung. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. Okay. So we are swimming against the stream here, you know. It's not popular to make the darkness conscious. It's much more popular to do the California version of love and light, whatever that is. Uh, And that's welcome here, but there's more. And we're exploring the whole thing. The next quote is by the author Julia J. Woodman. Enlightenment is not about cocooning oneself but about integrating more fully with both yourself and life. So that was a a common mistake that I made in my early years of practice. I thought, oh, if I only cocoon myself enough in wonderful retreats like this, then I'll get enlightened and everything will be okay. It'll be all worked out. It was a little uh, near miss. We're going to talk more about why that's a near miss. Uh, Last opening quote is by another author, uh, Richard Rohr. You know after any truly initiating experience that you are part of a much bigger whole. Life is not about you henceforward, but you are about life. The reflection tonight in a way, jumps off from the beginning section of Donald's talk last night. And so he did a whole piece about different ways to look at this process that's called insight. And then all the different ways that we can work with reactivity that can interfere or confuse the insight that's available to us. So I thought I would continue with that theme, but here we are at this point in the retreat, and so what I'm interested in reflecting on is actually the process of integrating insights and how we integrate them into daily life, because that's exactly where we are, and that's the million-dollar question. I'm going home. What next? Do I get to take it with me? It's not a simple question to answer. So I thought I'd just add a couple more of the many interpretations of this term insight for your reflection. This is from Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Insight is not a matter of belief or contemplation. Insight is a matter of direct seeing. Only with the actual seeing does there come a dramatic shift in the course of one's life and one's relationship to the Dhamma. So one of the important shifts for me in, I don't know, different years of practice, different progression of practice is understanding that there are actually many insights and many awakenings, not one. And Jack Hornfield was incredibly influential in me in this understanding in my early years of practice, and he would talk very much about enlightenments, awakenings, that it's not this one thing that we're aiming for and trying so hard, and we get there, and we woke up, and we live happily ever after, end of story. That would be so great. I really wished for that. Do some of you wish for that? 
Yeah, yeah, well, you know, yes and no. Yes and no. This is from the Zen tradition. Enlightenment is not something you get. It's something you do. It's not something we get that we get to hold on to and have, and I am the person who is enlightened, but it's something that manifests through us. We're the vessel. We're the vehicle. So last night, Donald named a, a great deal of different expressions of insights. And so I just want to continue with that in a more thematic way, just simple themes that you might be noticing today, tomorrow, in the coming days or weeks. So one type of insight or ways that we can wake up comes through the doorway of the mind. So let's just give a really simple example of this because the simple can be profound. So we're going along, minding our own business on this retreat, and we keep noticing over and over again, oh, familiar visitor coming into the mind. Oh, it's anger. It happens a lot. And then it moves out here, 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 everywhere. Okay? So in the noticing, we have choices. And in the noticing, which leads to the choices, insights start to bubble up. Oh, this is a tendency of mind. That's a very, very different understanding than I am an angry person and there's no way out. There's not a lot of insight in that. You see the difference? It's it's very simple, but incredibly impactful. And so then we can move out into our daily lives and start to track, okay, if this is a strong tendency of mind, and choose your own, you know, maybe it's fear, maybe it's greed, maybe it's impatience, could be anything. We start to notice these are the tendencies of mind. They tend to visit frequently. And now I'm out in the world and I can see, oh, this person, this situation, this dynamic is a trigger. So now we're starting to have you know, insights into what are the causes and conditions. It's one of the basic understandings in our tradition. What are the causes and conditions that lead to A, B, and C? Uh, And then we can start to work with practices like wise speech and uh, not spending too much time with people that we know are going to send us way over the edge, taking mindful pauses within spending time with those people. All of these little pieces that count so much. You know, because we can't avoid the difficult, but we can bring the tools in. And that's what we've been learning here, you know, this retreat and through the course of our practice life. So just simple example, the doorway of the mind. Another simple example, doorway of the um, psychology. We actually have insights into our personal psychology, right? How many of you have had an insight into your personal psychology this retreat? Whoa. So if you're not looking around, that was most of us. Okay, so here's a simple one. You may have noticed during the course of the retreat that there's some belief that keeps coming up that actually colors your view of reality. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has this happen, right? Yeah, you're nodding, you're looking at me vaguely. Yes, you're here. (laughs) Okay, we have beliefs that come up and then we hang our hat on them and create our whole world around them. So what happens when we notice? Again, out of the noticing, we have choice. And we can start to notice, oh, where are the places in our sense of self 
in the psychology are we stuck in an old habit pattern. Sometimes we call it a core belief. So we can look at I am a person who. I am a person who is not good enough. I am a person who doesn't need anything. I am a person who is fearless. I am a person who is kind. All of those things, if I am a person who, is incredibly limiting. Even the I am a person who is kind. What happens when a circumstance arises where A, I'm not kind, or B, the, you know, the kindness doesn't look like the box of I am a kind person? Then we've got a big problem, right? Struggle starts to arise. Through these kind of insights into the psychological, we know that it's just a belief. We're just believing this about ourselves. It's not inherently true. We can step outside the box and be enough or be scared sometimes or practice hard love instead of the, maybe the kindness that we interpret as I am a kind person. It's very helpful. (coughs) Then we have the insights that come through the body itself. So maybe you had a direct insight into the body, this retreat. I wonder if some of you actually landed in this field of physical sensations in a way that you never have before, or that you actually noticed for the first time ever that you've got hands. I know you knew you had hands, but feeling them, this amazing thing, it actually starts to change everything. Because then we have a resource that we can come back to that's available Uh, In times of beauty, to drink it into the body. In times of difficulty, to settle the nervous system. So it should change everything. So if that happened for you, or anything happened to you, kind of an awakening through the body, bookmark it so you can come back to it later. So a thousand types of insight. But really here, we're going to be talking about, we've had an insight I will not ask if anybody did not have an insight this retreat. I'm not going to ask. Because I I really think it's impossible, but it is possible that you missed the insight. Because sometimes they're so ridiculously simple and we're looking for something amazing and we miss it. So I have a model that... um, that talks about kind of how this arc happens. And it's a model that's a triangle. And it's a model about ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. So over here on the bottom of this side of the triangle, we've got ordinary. And up here at the apex, we've got extraordinary. And over here on the other side at the bottom, we've got ordinary. So what do these mean? I'm giving an example. Ordinary, let's talk about our sense of self. It's like, okay, ordinary expression of self. I'm Heather. You know, maybe I'm learning how to hold myself a little more lightly, a little less drama. Uh, I know what I like. I know what I don't like. It's just like an ordinary expression of a sense of health, self. In this case, it's a Heather sense of self, right? Then we practice. And through many moments of mindfulness and many tools and a lot of training and moments of grace, it starts to grow, it gets more mature. And then we have this extraordinary aha moment around, oh, the sense of self that I thought was solid and, and separate completely oh, started to get a little bit more fluid. Uh, another way of talking about this is the, the self transforms from a noun only into a verb. 
just a process happening to a system. Changes everything. Extraordinary, right? Then we go back down here to ordinary. Okay? And ordinary, in this case, is just understanding, oh, all these habits coming together, all this practice coming together, and now the self is expressing itself like this, little less drama, a little less problem with it, a little less struggle. So it's ordinary. Nobody knows that anything's changed. Okay, so here's the news that's important to remember. When you leave here and all the people that know you, they're not going to look at you and go, wow, extraordinary transformation. (laughs) You know, maybe one of you will have that experience with one person, but even that is not worth taking seriously, honestly. It's, people just, they hold us the way they hold us. They hold us based on a memory. They hold us based on perception. And we know that because as we grow over time, sometimes people aren't current with us anymore. So they're not current with us. We've just gone through an amazing training and they haven't. Be patient with them. So you're just manifesting ordinary, little less drama, a little more ease, all this. But here's the thing. This ordinary over here is not the same as this ordinary over here. Because this ordinary over here is informed by the extraordinary. It's informed by the insight. It's different. And we know it. I'll give you another example. That was kind of the wisdom side. How about the compassion side? So ordinary compassion. Every single one of us, before we began the spiritual path, had some connection, some moment in our lives where there was difficulty And we simply, the caring was manifest. This is not an unfamiliar thing being a human being. Ordinary. It's an available quality to human beings. Then we train. Then we do these practices. And it gets more and more well-developed. And we go through these cycles of purification where everything that could get in the way of that full compassion roars to the surface. And we get wiped out. And we put ourselves back together. We come back around, and it keeps deepening and deepening and deepening. All of a sudden, we have an extraordinary experience of compassion. Maybe you're sitting here, and it wasn't about whether you liked everybody here or not. You just felt the caring for them. Maybe there was a moment where the world in its suffering was manageable to be met with this heart, which is a really big deal. This is bodhicitta. Extraordinary. Then it comes back into ordinary. And out of that understanding, we can then manifest that caring in action in skillful ways because we're not confused, we're not caught up, we're not drowning, and we're not lost. Ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. So integrating insights. How do we live informed by these insights? Big question. The first piece that I want to acknowledge is that as we transform, and transformation is a process, it actually verifies itself. We don't have to figure it out. And the thing is, is that usually when we have an aha moment, the very next thing that happens, you know this, is that the thinking mind gets all involved in it. It wants to concretize it. It wants to understand it. It wants to name it. It wants to sing it from the rooftops. I've just had an awakening about this. Um, Actually, 
as we progress, as we mature, as we transform, it verifies itself. But that takes patience and it takes time. And so there's certain things that happen to us on our spiritual path and in retreats like this that actually we don't have language for right away. Just want to acknowledge that. Don't feel like you have to be able to explain yourself. Don't feel like you have to be able to explain this retreat. Just live from it. No. And those who can see and those who want to see will, and more importantly, will see. So we won't get caught in some of those traps. So there's a whole piece about kind of finding the language and the concepts to map our experience on the path. About a year and a half ago, I was in an intensive period of practice and there was a kind of a, a tremendous explosion of, of understanding and of opening of the mind and the heart. And at the time that it happened, um, I actually didn't think it was very significant. And then what I discovered was it started to change from the inside. And as it was, started changing from the inside and flowering out from those kind of initial openings and insights, I found myself in a period of tremendous confusion and even struggle. And all of a sudden, I couldn't explain what had happened. I couldn't find language for it. I couldn't find a headline that was easily explained. And, you know, I'm supposed to say something. That's my job, right, about the Dharma. And I just, it just got lost for a little while. because there was a deeper process of integration going on that wasn't about the language and it wasn't about mapping or explaining. And then after a period of time, everything came back together. And I was like, oh, I could give a few headlines about something related to that. Just no big deal, just some headlines. Sometimes it's like that. Our mindfulness practice itself is extremely helpful in that process. And two qualities in particular, I think, curiosity and inquiry. I wanted to share a short reading by John Tarrant, Zen teacher and author of the book, The Light Inside the Dark. And this about mindfulness. He says, attention gives us more life. It expands the register, bringing us to notice more of the vividness and the consolation of our dark lives so that we can exist in our true range and not go around missing things. It's as if we knew countries only from their airports and hotels. Attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and are blessed. When we attend to the interior life, we also connect with what surrounds us. The espresso machine hissing. I bet you can't wait for that. (laughs) The skipping rope with its two red handles in line and the rope curling lazily out and back. The green points on the snowdrops nodding over the cold ground. What was matter and merely inanimate becomes family. And we, the children, walking, 
walking, walking home, all wanting for love to be seen for who we are, for a new red car, is wanting to find and be taken into this mysterious depth of things. And it is this interconnection that resolves the problem of who we are and makes us at home in the world. So the great invitation into mindfulness. We've been practicing mindfulness in all activities here. We know it's just not about the sitting and the walking meditation periods. It's all activities, all postures. Moving forward, the rubber hits the road and the activities get faster paced and more complicated. And one of the biggest resources is to keep it simple in the midst of that complexity. So here's a suggestion. This is your first retreat. You might choose one activity that happens on a daily basis to be mindful of, an informal practice period. If you're not new to retreats, you might choose five. I, in general, have about five ongoing mindfulness practices. No. It ebbs and flows over the years. And they range tremendously. Some of them generally involve taking care of the body. And some of them generally involve taking care of the heart. And some of them generally involve taking care of the mind. Uh, but even that's too simplistic because it's an internal and interpersonal uh, community experience. Because we're not silent out there. So you could choose one or you could choose five. I'll just name some possibilities uh, from the students that I'm working with individually currently in a short list. Ways that they're having actual informal mindfulness practice periods in their lives. Some of them set intentions before they start the period or mark it in some way, a mindfulness bell, or just in their mind. Daily walks are a big one. Many of the... um, students that I work with individually, either with their small, adorable, furry one or with someone else in their lives or solo, uh, do a daily walk, metta practice, mindfulness practice. A number of people I know also have walks from their car to where they work or they offer service. And sometimes those walks are across great parking lots or even further. And people have found it helpful to take that time as an intensive form of practice before they go in to engage whatever or whomever they're engaging. Washing the dishes is another great one. And I always think of Deepama when I think of washing the dishes as an informal mindfulness practice period. In case you haven't heard of Deepama yet, Let me introduce you to her. She's um, sadly not alive on the planet anymore, but so alive in spirit. I often feel her actually at my back when there's an inspiration to increase the level of mindfulness and the stability and the continuity of it in daily life. I'll just feel Deepama at my back. So who she was was a Bengali housewife who went through a tremendous just heartbreaking amount of suffering and loss 
in her life, lost some, some of her dearest ones, and became so sick at heart that she actually almost probably died. And as a last resort, somebody suggested that she go to the local meditation center. And it said that she had to crawl up the stairs to get to her spot. I bet some of us have felt that. Maybe we haven't literally crawled. But sometimes it takes that much just to get back in this hall, huh? You know, to get back on the next retreat or the next daily sit or the next moment. And so it was like that for her. And it turned out what she didn't know is that uh, she was a meditation maestro. And she's one of the best around. She had no idea. And so her capacity for concentration and loving kindness and insight was profound. The expression of her awakening, however, was very, very feet on the ground. And she went back to her local community in the Bengali housewives. And they didn't have time to meditate. They were taking care of their families. But they had time to do the laundry. They had time to do the dishes. They had time to sweep the floor. They had time to hold their children and their grandchildren. And she said, this is the practice. This is the most important practice around. It's not a secondary practice out there. So a few other ones. Uh, Every time we walk up or down stairs, it's our mindfulness practice. Uh, Turning handles is a mindfulness practice. Many of us have had practices around answering the phone. And these days, answering a text, right? What do we do before we connect is there a moment of loving kindness or intention or a simple breath? Oh, what is it? It starts to change the environment of the mind, which starts to change the environment of the interaction. So, of course, one thing that most of us are probably aware of is the importance of a daily sitting practice. Yeah. So we could call that the roots and then the, all activities is the ground. And then we kind of move up into the, the branches of these more formal trainings. We could probably do it the other way around as well. But daily sitting practice. So here's some guidelines. I know a bunch of you are really, really new to um, retreats. And, and so to talk about bringing the momentum of this retreat in your daily life. It is so helpful Thursday morning, if you can sit. Thursday night, if you can sit. Thursday noon, if you can sit. But don't wait, because the momentum is here. And I know what I'm saying. Those of you that happen to celebrate the Christmas holiday, we're talking about the heart of things. Maybe it's five minutes. But just get yourself in the posture to remind yourself that you value it. And then in course of a daily life in general, um, recommend sitting every day when we can and for some people actually realistic form is five days out of seven that's fine Uh, it's helpful to sit for 20 minutes Uh, modern brain science says that if we have 20 minutes a day of quiet and stillness and mindfulness that's sometimes about the time it takes the nervous system to settle down at least the initial layer so I like to say 20 minutes sitting everything else is cake Let's say you can't do that. Let's say you've got a busy life. Let's say the discipline just isn't there. Don't beat yourself up. 
practice what James Barrows practiced. Uh, James Barrows is one of the founding teachers here. I found it so inspiring the way that he talks about when he was raising his son and um, working another job and, and trying to launch Spirit Rock and all this stuff. There was a lot going on. There were days when he would get to the end of his day and the sitting just hadn't happened. And so he put a cushion, or you could put a chair, but he put a cushion right next to his bed. And what he would do is he would sit down for two minutes, get his body in the posture, wish himself well for doing it, and then go to bed because he was exhausted. (laughs) We can do that. It's a wonderful practice. It counts. So if you don't have a place to sit yet where you live, uh, it's pretty simple. You can just designate a chair or a corner somewhere, and and some people will put a candle or they'll put something they love from nature or photographs of those that inspire them or something like that. And if you have a large enough space, it's helpful to have a little corner where the only thing that happens there is sitting meditation so that it's not a multitasking area. We are experts at multitasking. Good job. And this is the other training. And if it's not possible, you know, don't worry about it. Just really set your intention when you sit down that this is the time for sitting. So the real hard part is not sitting. The real hard part is actually getting our butt there. Is the discipline, right? It's not a very sexy word in this culture. The training. So a few things. First of all, if you have other disciplines in your life, things that you're committed to, that you value, that you do every day, do a little bridging, a little creative kind of exploration or inquiry. What is it that supports me to keep doing these things? And I bet there are things you can translate into the sitting. A lot of the people that I'm working with right now are actually two different things seem to be working really well in the the wider communities I'm serving. And one is actually meditation calendars. Okay. So in a world of screens, we print out an actual old-time calendar. And some people write a check mark if they sat, some people have symbols and colored pens, and some people have stickers. In fact, some of the people that I know them that are grandparents or parents, their young ones will help them do the stickers, and then if they don't meditate, the young one is quite upset that they don't get to do the sticker that day. And they're like, go do that quiet thing that you do so that I can do the sticker. Okay? What happens when you put that on your fridge is there's transparency every single time you go by the fridge and open the fridge. It's really obvious with the stickers or, or the symbols and colored marker where the gaps are. And it's not a reason to judge ourselves, it's a reason to be so honest that we can recommit to our deeper priorities. And that's what we're looking at here. Is this my deeper priority? Do I want to commit to this? We'll often say that we do, but really? So we have to check. And then the other thing, if you don't have a young one in your life or you're you know, too embarrassed as an adult to do a sticker, you don't have to have a young one to do a sticker, by the way, um, is Dharma Buddies, right? And what I'm discovering, so first of all, at the end of this retreat, there is full permission to be socially awkward and walk up to somebody that you don't know. Maybe it's the one that sat really still and you were you know, feeling squirmy and you just felt their stillness and you thought, all right, you know, 
it's just really helpful to have this rock sitting here next to me. And they inspired you in some way. And you don't have to tell them about all that, although you can. But you just go up to them and say, uh, you're interested in having a, a Dharma buddy for tracking sitting. Or somebody that it was in your work meditation or whatever. Now, if you get approached and you know that you're not going to do daily sitting or you know it's not possible to do a daily text or something like that or a weekly text. So some people will do daily texts or whatever, calls or emails or whatever. A lot of times people do it weekly. Just like, here's the update of my week. It depends. Depends on how much support you need. You might have somebody in your community at home. But the other thing that I'm noticing is it doesn't have to be a meditator. I've been talking to people who now have Dharma buddies to support their daily meditation practice who know nothing about meditation. And here's how I've been coaching them to approach that person. It's like going to the gym. You got it? Any of us that have trained in something physical know that we want to do it. It's hard to do it. We need a little coaching. We need a little cheering on. So most people, whether they meditate or not, and even whether they've gone to the gym or not, can understand this. So you go up to somebody and you say, you know, you know how when you need some help with uh, cheering on with going to the gym You just need somebody to track you with it. Well, I've got this new gym of the mind that I'm doing, mindfulness meditation, and most people have heard of that now, which is super helpful. And, you know, would you mind if I texted you once a week just so I could have some tracking on that? It's rare that people would say no. If you know them and they care about you, they're like, yeah, what's the big deal? Try it out. There are, of course, a lot of uh, tech resources, too, depending on where you live. You know, kind of the, what we lay out is a 20-minute sit a day, one weekly sitting group if there's one in your area, or one online, and one retreat a year. That's a great container. You can do more, but that's a great initial container. So we start to celebrate our capacity and gather our resources. So this is another poem from Julia Butterfly Hill, also written when she was living up in Luna during her time to bring awareness about the destruction of forests worldwide. It's called Truly Blessed. Glorious golden sun pokes and prods at my eyelids, whispering to awake another majestic day. Below milk-white mist, tinged with the reflection, tenderly touches the yawning forest. Nature's morning breath breathes sweet as honey to my tantalized senses. Varying shades of green raise their arms to embrace this magical beauty. I climb to the top of my perch, reaching into the heavens, raising my hands in absolute adoration to the spiritual wonderment of creation. She sat a 738-day retreat up there. Can you hear it? No. No, in service to this planet. That quality of wonderment and inspiration and connection and gratitude is one of the greatest resources to keep us going with the practice. 
in its forms and in its essence. And that's really why I brought in the poem. A lot of people with their daily sitting, they'll read a Dharma poem or a short something or other first to inspire their sitting. So we have insights. We start to cultivate the patience to allow them to move through us. We continue the momentum of the practices so that they stabilize and deepen. And then we get to examine something else, that if we don't understand this, we can come up with a lot of ideas that are not helpful. And it's this. We need to have tremendous, rigorous honesty about what isn't awake yet. Another way of putting this is rigorous honesty about the remaining defilements. What is the clinging that remains after that which is opened, that which has been freed up, lightened up? What's left? Because for me, I know there were so many periods where I just wanted enlightened retirement. This is actually fairly common. I didn't know it at the time. It was like, oh, an insight, fantastic. Can I just live at the extraordinary level of this insight for the rest of my life and retire? I'm exhausted. I've worked so hard. And the answer was no. (laughs) It's very humbling. It's very humbling. So I want to tie this back in with the Ajahn Chah quote from the last talk and using it as tracking where we're at with various things. When you let go a little, you have a little peace. When you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. When you let go completely, you have complete peace. And so that's actually something we can track. It's like, oh, in regards to that irritation habit pattern, let go a lot? No, let go a little. Okay, it still counts. Rigorous honesty. Oh, in regards to that uh, self-hatred, I'm not good enough. Oh, let go a lot. Oh, seems to be ceasing for a long period of time. Okay? But the thing is, is that if we try to prolong our understanding, we can fall into a pit which is called spiritual bypass. Okay, so... Let's talk about that. Spiritual bypass is a term that was coined by John Wellwood, who lives here in Marin County, a teacher, psychotherapist, lifelong spiritual practitioner. Uh, So this is an interview done with him. Can you explain the term spiritual bypass? He says, Although most of us spiritual practitioners were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. What happens if our tendency has been to be extremely angry in our lives, lots of triggers. It's just the tendency of mind that we came onto the planet with. And then we go on retreat, and it really settles down, and we experience like everything else that's available. And then we go in our lo- out in our lives and like try to kill it off and say, oh no, I'm not angry anymore. I was a person who was angry, now I'm a person who's not angry. 
you know, it means we're going to bypass. We're not going to feel what's actually there. We're not going to allow what's actually there. That's different than acting out on it in an unskillful way. But we don't want to leave anything out. John Wilwood continues, when we are spiritually bypassing, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence. Okay? (laughs) Trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced and made peace with it. And we tend to use the absolute truth to disparage or dismiss relative human needs, feelings, psychological problems, relational difficulties, and developmental deficits. I see this as an occupational hazard of the spiritual path in that spirituality does involve a vision of going beyond our current situation. So that's why we really need the honesty of what has been let go of a little, transformed a little, revealed a little. How about what's been let go of or transformed a lot? How about completely? Okay, completely is available. But to verify it through our own direct experience takes time, it takes years. And there's almost an in-between half step between letting go a lot and letting go completely. And it looks something like this. There's some unhelpful tendency of mind or, or of speech or of action or whatever it is. And it just seems we shine the light of awareness on it. We bring in tools, we work with it, we care about it, we investigate it, we bring everything we've got. And it starts to seem a little less, and it comes up a little less often, a little less strongly. Now there's long periods where it's not coming up at all. Really long periods where it's not coming up at all. Really long periods. Whoa, is it completely? And the half step is this. It's completely, and here's how I put it, unless the perfect storm of nightmarish triggering conditions arises. And oops, the root isn't completely uprooted, it was 95%, and the whole thing roars out into the foreground again. Guess what? It's not the same. Don't get confused about that. Don't judge yourself about that. Don't say, I failed. We didn't fail. In fact, what's happened is the worst nightmarish storm of conditions ever. And the very last vestiges of that habit pattern roar to the foreground. But here's the thing. We know better. We see it. It's less intense. And it dissipates more quickly. There's less struggle. There's less drama. If we understand this is part of the process. So there's a poem that I love that really points to that. The poem is by Portia Nelson. I didn't actually bring it with me, so it's a improv. And it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Okay, so this is how we work. And this poem itself can be used to track experience. Where are we in the autobiography in any given moment? Chapter one, I walk down a street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I don't see it. I fall in. 
It's not my fault. It takes me forever to get out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. It's not my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street and imagine there's the same deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it. I fall in anyway. (laughs) It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the very same street and there's the very same hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down a different street. (laughs) That is what we're doing here. So it's a great one. I track that one all the time. I'm like, what chapter am I on now? And don't miss when you're on the fifth chapter because it's really easy to use that as a teaching just where there's holes and you're falling in and stuff. Really notice when you're walking down a different street. These practices allow the space to move outside of our condition containers and boxes and actually walk down a different street. One of my deepest fears in my early years of retreats, at the end of retreat, goes something like this. Basically, the fear was that I would lose whatever insights had happened. And the biggest fear was that I would forget. I would forget all this. I would forget what it feels like, as Julia Butterfly Hill was saying, the magnificence, the sweet honey, just the presence. That I go out in the world, it's so busy and it's so full and so complicated and how am I gonna hold on to this? I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that fear. And I remember at the end of retreats, uh, the teachers that taught the retreats would often say something. uh, I I always kind of heard it in this sage type of voice. And they would say, you will forget all this and you will remember. And I think, what are they talking about? (laughs) You know, I think some part of me actually knew what they were talking about, but it just wasn't what I wanted to hear. What I wanted to hear them say was, you will remember all this always and forever, just as you do right now. But that's not what they said. They said, you will forget all this and you will remember. Again, it's like the chapters. There's certain parts of this and what we treasure about this that will just fall out of and fall in the holes of our old habit patterns fairly quickly. And some of them we'll see and get out of immediately and others of them we won't until we realize that we're grieving for something that we can barely even remember that's already fading away. And then others of them, sometimes I think they have a scent like the scent lingers, or the, the feeling lingers. Now, if we try to glue that together with some experience that happened here, 
or some experience that has happened to us on the spiritual path, that leads to a lot of struggle because it's not about the experience. It's actually about the way that our entire, our cells start to change. The mind stream starts to change and that's not something particular actually. So that leads me back to the importance of when that longing comes up to have it back, whatever it is, to remember just like it's right now, to actually tease apart the fantasies, the worries, the obsessions with all that with the wholesome and beautiful longing to be free, longing to be awake, We need to tease those apart. And one of the ways that we can tease them apart is when we notice that kind of dynamic going on. I'm afraid I'll forget all this, or, you know, I've lost the insight. Instead, it's leaning into the intention, oh, what's happening here really is that I care about being awake. I care about seeing clearly. I care about manifesting compassion. And so we lean into that with our whole being and our intentions. May it be so. May I trust in the unfolding. And so I mentioned this before. I walk around on the planet saying that a lot. May I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding. It's uncertain is mysterious, I don't know. So let's go back to ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. Okay. Sometimes as part of the integration process of insights, awakenings, retreats, the spiritual path itself, There comes a point where whatever it was that lit up in us becomes so ordinary because it actually is integrating and integrated that we can fall into a near miss which looks like I lost it. It's become so ordinary that we actually are concerned that we've lost it. And in fact, what's happened is we've unglued the understanding from the experience that was the catalyst of it. And so now it's just being lived in extremely ordinary ways, but it's informed by wisdom. It's informed by those experiences and those understandings. Be on the lookout for that. The mind can go there. I lost it because it doesn't feel as intense as before. That actually can indicate it's maturing and integrating. It's not as exciting. No, I hope you didn't go on the spiritual path just for exciting. There are really exciting things that can happen, but in in fact, the full maturity of this is not necessarily very exciting. It's rich. It's worth it. But we want it to become special again. When in fact, the maturing is like that it doesn't need to be special. Because guess what? If we keep going on the spiritual path, I don't care if you never come on another retreat. The spiritual path is not about Buddhism or Dharma or retreats. It's a spiritual path. It includes everything. If you keep going on this path, there's going to be more aha moments and more insights and more awakenings with an S. And it'll just keep happening. So one teacher puts it, enlightenment is an accident. And we're on the spiritual path to become accident prone. That's how it works. 
So as we move through that process, these insights, these ahas, these maturing of the spiritual path um, begin to manifest more and more and more. And I'm really sorry to say that the world isn't cheering loudly, you know, I wish they were, about your maturing practice. In fact, they're so consumed with themselves that they don't even notice. (laughs) So please, uh, see what you can do to avoid becoming the person who is spiritual, becoming the person who has had an aha moment on a meditation retreat. It actually leads to trouble. You don't have to become that person. You just live what's moved through you and let it ripple out because the world needs those ripples. And there's so much more energy through these spiritual practices available to see clearly and to respond. Really to see, to care, and to respond. So I want to close with just a very simple story about this Potential. It's actually a story that's just ordinary. To see, to care, and to respond, which is really why we're doing this. And it's a story about a pickup truck. Did you expect that? <laughs> it's really one of my favorite stories right now. I reflect on it all the time, every time it makes me smile. It's a story about generosity, or Donna. And so the Huffington Post, I don't know, a while back, wrote an article about an incident that happened in 2012. And the article was accompanied by a photograph that basically said it all. And the photograph was of this dark-colored pickup truck. And you could see in the photo that the tires of this pickup truck were as bald as could be, just not much left at all. But the main part of the photograph was this little note taped to the window of the truck. And here's what the note said. You do not know me, but I saw that you needed some tires for your truck. And I wanted to do something nice for a stranger because one day a stranger did something nice for me. The receipt is in the envelope And all you have to do is go by Warehouse Tire on 3rd Street and ask for Stephen Hodges, and they will be put on for free. All I ask is one day you do something nice for a complete stranger. So we see, we care, and we respond. And I mean, that is a, a, a... dramatic example of generosity. I mean, tires, four tires on a truck aren't exactly cheap. But it's the expression of seeing, I mean, how many times, metaphorically speaking, have we walked by a pickup truck with bald tires, whatever the version of it was, and we've seen it, and maybe we've even had the impulse, I wonder if I could do something to help, but we're too busy, or we don't want to interfere, or... Me, 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 me. (laughs) And that's okay. But there's more. There's more potential there. And the discernment, of course, is that I'm hoping that this um, fellow, sounded like from the story it was a fellow, although we're not totally sure, um, 
He probably had to discern, well, he saw the truck, he saw the possibility, he remembered his deeper value, and that's the point. How do we like speak, think, and act from our deeper values? And then he realized that he had the resources to manifest it in that moment at that way. But there may have been other times he walked by other trucks and it, it didn't all come together, right? Like, you know, I hadn't just gotten a paycheck and it wasn't going to work out. So we have to discern what's wise now, what's caring now. How do we balance all this out? So this is from Pema Chodron. She's talking about the three difficult practices. So good luck. The three difficult practices are, number one, to recognize your neurosis as neurosis. That's important. Number two, then not do the habitual thing, but do something different to interrupt the neurotic habit. And number three, to make this practice a way of life. Last quote by the African-American mystic and activist Howard Thurman. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So may we offer this aliveness and awakeness in every needed way on this planet at this time. Thank you for your practice and your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.